Sometimes we'd come out of that prison and would be actually sick. I just was tired of Ted Bundy and what he'd taken of my life, really. Bundy is right there at the top with, with horror and uh, depravity and sin. I still hate Ted Bundy. That was a sample of statements from those who interviewed, personally knew, or prosecuted one of the most infamous serial killers in U.S. history. I'm talking about none other than Ted Bundy, whose last acts of savagery, which took place across the northern region of Florida, ended 41 years ago this week. That story is coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll discuss the crimes, capture, escapes, and recaptures of Theodore Robert Bundy, who died by the electric chair 30 years ago last month for the slangs of three Florida females. Saturday marked the 41st anniversary of the death of Bundy's last victim, 12-year-old Diane Leach, who was abducted from her junior high school in Lake City. Bundy was eventually caught in Pensacola after police identified the car he was driving as stolen. Unbeknownst to Pensacola police, they had apprehended one of the FBI's 10 most wanted fugitives, Someone who had instilled fear into thousands of co-eds across the Pacific Northwest and Tallahassee. My special guest for that segment will be former state attorney for the 7th Judicial Circuit, John Tanner, who provided spiritual counseling to Bundy while the killer sat on death row. But first up, I wanted to update you on a story I profiled in October 2017. A Wisconsin man who was arrested for the 1997 gang rape of a 14-year-old girl near Daytona Beach has been tried and convicted. The case had been cold for 20 years. The reporter who covered that trial, News Journal Justice reporter Frank Fernandez, will join me next. State of Florida versus Robert Sheridan Park, case number 2017-301-344, CFDB. Verdict, we the jury find the defendant, Robert Sheridan Hart, as follows. Count one, guilty of the charge of sexual battery, victim 12 years of age or older, specified circumstances. On January 23rd, jurors in Volusia County found Robert Sheridan Har guilty of one count of sexual battery. 22 years ago, a 14-year-old girl was raped by three men near a lake in what was then a rural section of Daytona Beach. The men threatened to kill her. They told her they would feed her to the alligators if she didn't submit quietly. The victim waited more than 21 years for justice to be served. Robert Haar, now 44 years old, closed his eyes as the clerk read the guilty verdict. When he gets sentenced next month, he is looking at up to life in prison. Authorities still have not arrested or identified the other two men who were involved. 
The investigation went cold until 2016, when the Volusia County Sheriff's Office submitted the untested DNA sample to a private lab. That also happened to be the year Har's own DNA was taken in Wisconsin on a separate arrest there. I profiled this story in a segment for Episode 8, released in October 2017, which happened to be the 20th anniversary of the crime. Former Volusia County Sheriff Ben Johnson told me then that his agency found a way to pay for a private lab to test a number of DNA samples from his former agency's cold case files. A few years back, one of the things we did was we contracted with a private lab. Some of it goes to Tallahassee, some of it goes to a private lab. That's how we did it. Uh, it was programs that were actually done throughout the country, but we used confiscated funds to help pay for it. And it was a very, very valuable way to spend those funds to go after existing crimes that, that were not solved and crimes that were going to happen. And you're going to see more and more DNA coming as it goes on. It's going to get more advanced. And what is very interesting in the criminal justice system is we're going to see things come up that we don't even know about now. But DNA has taken such a, a, such a great jump with the technology that you'll see a lot more cases being solved. Once local investigators got the hit they wanted, they fetched an arrest warrant. The victim in the case is now 35 years old. She still lives locally. She wept when detectives reached out to her to let her know an arrest had been made. During Har's trial, it was again difficult for the woman to bottle up her emotions after the verdict was read. Here is my colleague, News Journal Justice reporter Frank Fernandez, describing her reaction. Oh, she was... She just kind of let out a, a cry, uh, like a shriek, uh, and when when they when it was announced. Then afterwards, she she was composed and she was happy that justice had finally been done. When the victim was raped by Har and his accomplices, she was an eighth grader. She weighed less than a hundred pounds. She had no capacity to fight back against three grown men. The victim testified during the trial. She struggled at times recalling the graphic details, but the testimony was heartfelt and difficult for the defense to overcome. It, it was very gripping, uh, very emotional. Uh, you could tell she was really having a difficult time having to relive these horrible memories of what happened to her 22 years ago. During her testimony, the woman said Har kept telling her he was sorry about what he and his friends were doing to her. She said she also heard him tell her that he thought she was beautiful. And he did all this while forcing himself on her. The girl had been with some friends. The group of teens took a pair of Ford Broncos earlier that day and headed out to a place in the area of Clyde Morris and LPGA Boulevards. The body of water there was known as Mud Lake. Eventually, there was some tension in the group. The victim got angry and said some things. Her friends got angry at her and bolted from Mud Lake, leaving her behind and alone. The 14-year-old began walking toward the nearest gas station she could find so that she could use a payphone to call someone to pick her up. 
She spotted a black van and instinctively tried not to walk near it. But moments after seeing the van, she felt someone grab her from behind. She was brought to the van by two men, and a third was waiting for them inside. They drove her to another location, and two of them raped her. The third man tried to, but couldn't perform. The woman testified that all three men continued to mock her during the ordeal. When it came time to talk about what they would do to her, at least one of the men suggested tying cement blocks to her and tossing her into the water. Eventually, they all decided to let her go. She was dropped off in Port Orange, where she ran to her grandmother's house and took a shower. Her grandmother called police. Jurors watched a video of deputies' interview with the girl. She was interviewed only a few days after she was raped. She was 14 years old then. She sat on a sofa, clinging to a stuffed animal. During the trial, Har also took the stand. In his defense, he said he had never seen the victim and never had sex with her. He admitted he had been convicted of seven prior felonies in his life and said he was guilty of all of them. Referring to his most recent arrest, he said, quote, This charge, right now, I'm not guilty of. Har, who got married and had four children after the 1997 incident, also insisted he has never had non-consensual sex with any female in his life. During his testimony, he told his attorney, Rachel Brothers, that he was shocked and confused when local authorities showed up in Wisconsin to arrest him. How surprised were you when the detectives um, confronted you 20 years later in Wisconsin? Yeah, I was floored. And, um, I was, when it came to me where I was at, and I was floored. I, I didn't know what they were talking about. I looked at them, and, and, and I, I don't even know what they're talking about. I've never seen this woman, never met this woman, never, never did anything with this woman. But detectives said Har did make some sort of admission statement when he was arrested. Here is prosecutor Andrew Urbanic questioning Har during cross-examination. Do you remember telling the police during the interview as you're going back and forth with them, talking about the DNA? You said, you guys got DNA, I guess I did then. And there's nothing I can do because DNA don't lie. That statement, DNA don't lie, was recycled several times during the trial. Here again is Frank Fernandez. That was interesting because uh, uh, he told them in Wisconsin, DNA don't lie, and uh, Urbanic, the prosecutor, was able to use that in the trial. He repeated that. In the questioning, he asked him, you know, about that. And then during the closing arguments, Urbanic began the closing argument by saying, DNA don't lie. That came right from Robert Har's mouth, the accused, which I thought Urbanic used that line very effectively. Har is scheduled to be sentenced March 29th. Frank told me the state attorney's office has given him no indication that they are close to arresting one or more of Har's accomplices. Authorities have remained tight-lipped about the investigation. Before I move on to the next segment, I also wanted to update you on another arrest I profiled last July in episode 47. 
Jamie Rome was a regular sight along Main Street and Daytona Beach for years. He often dressed up in a minion suit and danced in front of Jungle George's, a beach souvenir shop. Rome is partially blind and mentally disabled, and a self-described social media star tried to perform a stunt at Rome's expense. Ryan Nyhart of Citrus County, who calls himself Bouge Rache, lifted up Rome, spun him around, kicked him, and tackled him. One of the people accompanying Nyhart recorded the incident on his cell phone camera, but the store surveillance camera also captured it, and it didn't come off well for Nyhart, a self-described social media star. I was just kidding, bro. Bring him up. Me and the menu talked about it, bro. I would, hey, why, I, no offense, I, I understand, sir. Hey, I'm just doing Instagram shit. Where's your ID? My ID's in the car, sir. I haven't done anything wrong. I was talking to the dude. They all were In that case, me. turn around. Yes, sir. I apologize for any inconvenience. Nyhart went on to explain that he performed the stunt as a way to bolster his social media profile. On January 29th, Nyhart pleaded guilty to battery and criminal mischief. The judge sentenced the 26-year-old to 10 days in jail. He also was ordered to serve 12 months probation. Nyhart also was ordered to pay for the damage to the minion suit and to enroll in a moral recognition therapy course as part of his probation. Rome's boss told the News Journal after the sentence that Rome has not felt comfortable since the attack and has only worked sporadically. Coming up, the story about a killer of women even more devastating than Jack the Ripper himself. A man who brought terror to Florida after carrying out a killing spree more than 3,000 miles away. I'm talking about the one and only Ted Bundy. For everything he did to the girls bludgeoning and the strangulation, humiliating their bodies, torturing them. I feel that the electric chair is too good for him. Lots of mothers felt the same way Eleanor Rose did 30 years ago, as the clock ticked toward Ted Bundy's execution. There were countless others who may have suspected Bundy killed their daughters. But police were never able to make the link. In a strange set of events, the one pushing hardest to have Bundy's looming execution pushed back was the top prosecutor for the Seventh Judicial Circuit, a circuit that didn't have any jurisdiction over any portion of the Bundy case. In spite of that, State Attorney John Tanner met Bundy while part of a prison ministry, and he provided spiritual guidance to the condemned killer. Tanner estimated he had met with Bundy more than 50 times. When he first met with him, Tanner was an attorney in private practice. While he, along with his wife, continued to counsel Bundy, he kicked off his campaign for state attorney. In fact, I was running for state attorney. It was uh, it was a very... Uh 
uncomfortable at the beginning circumstance to be, you know, spending time with the most hated serial killer in America and running for the state attorney's office, the first time I'd ever run for any political office in my life. But what it did, people questioned me about it because I was open about it. You know, I, we had had over 50 visits with him. So people would ask me about it. I'd basically explain to him that, you know, we were led of the Lord and, you know, we're doing what we're supposed to do. Tanner was then, and still is today, a very religious man. Theodore Robert Bundy was a notorious killer of young women. It's certain that he murdered more than 30 of them. One of the detectives who investigated the cases in Washington state said the actual number of victims may have exceeded 100. Governor Bob Martinez signed Bundy's death warrant in 1989. Based on Tanner's recollection, the governor made a unique move to fast forward the execution date. Bundy, after all his appeals were burned, began to confess to more murders that police were unable to pin on him. Long and short of it is, he he was confessing. He told them about some he did they didn't know about, and he would have told them about more if they had given him the thirty days instead of the one week. Tanner told me he reached out to the governor personally to get him to postpone the date. Martinez told the media that Bundy, through his intermediaries, was promising to confess to more killings in exchange for a postponement. But Martinez refused. Tanner had no intention of saving Bundy's life. He insisted he only requested a delay of execution because it was in the best interest of investigators and the families of those victims who weren't officially linked to Bundy. Tanner said Bundy was where he belonged. He also told me that Bundy himself knew that death row was where he needed to be. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In fact, we discussed the death penalty a few times, and he said everyone on death row believes in the death penalty except for themselves. He said, we all, we all know it works. He said, there are guys out there that would have killed people that we know that didn't because they were afraid of the electric chair. Bundy is forever a big part of what is referred to as the golden age of the serial killer. He's practically front and center. And worst of all, he's practically glamorized. There is so much footage available of Ted Bundy smiling. He was a confident speaker. And the countless hours of courtroom footage of him, he exudes confidence. Bundy was poised. He rarely seemed temperamental, at least while the cameras were rolling. Even when he looked irritated, he never seemed to raise his voice. One journalist who interviewed him extensively while he was on death row equated his early encounters with Bundy as sitting down with a normal 30-something guy going over a business deal, jumpsuit and shackles notwithstanding. Bundy was born in 1946 to Eleanor Louise Cowell at a home for unwed mothers in Burlington, Vermont. Cowell did not raise Bundy during the first three years of his life. In fact, Bundy was originally told by family members that Louise was his older sister. During that time, Bundy was raised by his maternal grandparents in Philadelphia. In 1950, before Bundy turned four, Louise took her son and moved to Tacoma, Washington, so she could be close to her cousins. That's where Bundy would spend the rest of his childhood. 
Bundy's mother would marry and her son would take his stepfather's surname. Bundy grew up in a white suburb. He often ran around and played with the other neighborhood kids. Years later, some of those childhood friends would describe examples of Bundy's behavior. He was teased for stuttering. He'd play mean pranks. He'd lose his temper. As he got older, he was full of bravado, but he would become increasingly isolated, probably because he had such a high opinion of himself, which others found off-putting. Here again is John Tanner talking to me about Bundy's upbringing, which never seemed anything beyond normal. There are all sorts of theories. He claimed to us, and, and uh, I, I don't know if it's true or not, and no way I'll ever know, uh, that his, you know, his family upbringing was loving and caring, that he was not abused. Uh, there's a theory out there he was abused by his grandfather and things like that. He always denied that. We didn't talk about it much, but he said, no, he said he had a good, had a good family life. He said it wasn't a perfect family life, but he said no one abused him or sexually molested him. He got arrested twice as a juvenile, including once for stealing a car. But once Bundy became an adult, those arrests were expunged from his record. Bundy's mother doted on him, and she was unwavering in her loyalty to him throughout his life. Bundy would always speak warmly of her, too. Bundy graduated from high school in 1975. He enrolled at a small local college before transferring to the University of Washington in Seattle. He was up and down as a college student. It was during his college years that Bundy got interested in politics. He campaigned openly for Nelson Rockefeller when the New York Republican ran for president in 1968 and attended the Republican National Convention that year in Miami as a Rockefeller delegate. Bundy also had a couple of girlfriends during his college years. The one he was most serious with was a woman by the name of Elizabeth Klepfer. She was a single mother when she met Bundy. They got engaged, but their tumultuous relationship ended in 1976. By then, Bundy had already begun killing. Linda Ann Healy was Bundy's first known murder victim. Although investigators would later say they think Bundy started murdering girls much earlier, while still a teenager. Here is Bundy discussing that first slaying with evangelical leader Jim Dobson, who was the last to interview him before he was executed. Ted, after you committed your first murder, what was the emotional effect on you? What happened in the days after that? It was like coming out of some kind of horrible trance or, or dream. Um, I can only liken it to after, you know, I, I don't want to over-dramatize it, but to have been possessed by something so awful and so alien, and then the next morning wake up from it, remember what happened and realize that basically, I mean, in, in the eyes of the law, certainly in the eyes of God, you're responsible. Uh, to, have, to wake up in the morning and, and realize what I had done and with a clear mind and all my essential moral and ethical feelings intact at that moment uh, uh, absolutely horrified that I was capable of doing something like that 
Keeley went missing in February 1974, when police entered her home. There was blood found on her pillow and bed. Keeley literally went to sleep, was battered in her sleep, and pulled out of her home. Three other co-eds lived in that same off-campus house. None of Healy's roommates were awakened. None of them heard anything. A bloody nightgown was left behind, and other clothes were missing, indicating that the killer stripped her and then dressed her. Healy's pillowcase and backpack also were missing. More female students wound up disappearing during the next five and a half months. All but one had been abducted in Washington. The other lived in Oregon. Gail Manson, Susan Rancourt, Roberta Kathleen Parks, Brenda Ball, and George Ann Hawkins all went missing from February 1st, 1974 through mid-June of that year. The bodies would not be discovered until the following year. Paranoia engulfed Seattle and the surrounding area as the media began covering the story of the missing co-eds. Doors normally left unlocked were bolted shut. Hitchhiking, which was a normal occurrence back then, even among teen girls, became frowned upon. Young women did not go out of their homes alone. Police had no clues until July. That's when two more women in Washington disappeared. They were Denise Nasland and Janice Ott. The pair went missing July 14th from a popular state park called Lake Sammamish. Law enforcement gathered some details following the women's disappearance. Witnesses had spotted a man, and they said he had an arm in a sling. At least one person saw Nasland, who had been lying on a beach, walk to the bathroom. They saw the man with his arm in a sling approach Nasland. The pair spoke to each other. It was assumed the man asked Nasland for some help with something, perhaps to carry something to his car. She agreed to help him and was never seen again. That same day, Janice Ott was approached by a man who fit the same description as the man who had approached Nasland. Ott was on the beach a short distance away from where Nasland was last seen. Ott's friends overheard the suspect introduce himself to her. He said the words, Hi, I'm Ted. After that, Ott disappeared. The suspect was seen driving a light brown or tan Volkswagen Bug. Authorities suspected Ted was the same man responsible for the other disappearances. Police now had a name and a car description. Not long after all this happened, Bundy's girlfriend, Elizabeth Klepfer, came forward in August 1974, suggesting to law enforcement that it take a close look at her boyfriend, Ted Bundy. She saw items in his possession that disturbed her, tools that could have been used in a kidnapping. Ted had told her a story of following a sorority girl home. He would disappear for hours on end and sometimes would even be gone overnight. Klepfer's boyfriend fit the description of the mysterious Ted. He also drove a Volkswagen Bug. He was the right age and he knew the lay of the land. He lived near and attended the University of Washington. Sometime later, witnesses were shown a photo of Bundy. All but one 
said unequivocally that the Ted they saw that day at the Lakeside Park was not the Ted in the photo. Police did not pursue the lead. Bundy, as it turned out, had a chameleon-like appearance, and he used that to his advantage. He'd grow out his curly hair, or he'd cut it short. He'd grow a beard, or he'd grow a mustache. He'd gain weight, and he'd lose it. But more importantly, Bundy did the one thing that kept detectives from picking up his scent. He moved around. A lot. In the fall of 1974, Bundy moved from the Seattle area to Utah. He enrolled in law school at the University of Utah. He became ensconced with the Church of Latter-day Saints. During that fall, four young females went missing, ranging in ages 16 to 17. They were, on average, a few years younger than the victims in Washington and Oregon. The victims were Nancy Wilcox, Melissa Ann Smith, Laura Amy, and Deborah Kent. But one of Bundy's victims got away. Her name was Carol Durant, an 18-year-old from Murray, Utah. Bundy approached Durant when she was alone at the mall. He told her that her car had been broken into and identified himself as a police officer. Durant wasn't completely sure about this guy, but he cleverly got her to let her guard down. He just promptly pulled out his wallet and showed me a badge. And I went, oh, okay. He drove a Volkswagen, which I thought, well, that's kind of odd, but maybe he's undercover. Bundy offered to drive Durant to the station where she could file a report. She agreed to go with him. He drove her to a school. It was Saturday and no one was on the property. That's when she felt a sense of dread. Bundy attacked her and she fought back. He pulled a gun and told her he would blow her head off. She somehow escaped from the car, but Bundy began fighting with her outside. By this time, he was wielding a crowbar. That's when another car started rolling by, and that's when Durant broke free again. She ran toward the car, jumped in, and screamed at the driver to take her to a police station. She got away. But Bundy was so amped up after failing to kill Durant that he got back into his car and drove to another location to find another victim. He found one, Deborah Kent. Her remains would never be discovered. Not long after that, in early 1975, the remains of the victims who were slain in Washington and Oregon were found. Their skeletons were found at Taylor Mountain. The remains of Ott and Nasland were found a short distance away in the area of Issaquah. Wild animals had removed all the flesh from their bodies and scattered their bones. During the early part of 1975, Bundy had moved on to yet another state, and then another. Three young women were killed in Colorado. A 12-year-old girl was abducted and killed in Idaho. In June, a 15-year-old girl disappeared at Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. Bundy would later confess to all five of those killings. The remains of only one of those victims were never recovered. 
The killings in that part of the country stopped suddenly after Bundy was pulled over by a Utah state trooper outside Salt Lake City. Bundy refused to pull over, but eventually was captured and jailed on a charge of fleeing. Bundy had items in his car that caught the trooper by surprise. A crowbar, a ski mask, a coil of rope, handcuffs, and a set of pantyhose. Bundy was released after posting bail, but he was under close watch. He sold his car to an unsuspecting teenager, but authorities confiscated it and impounded it. In October, Bundy was brought in. The survivor of the attack in Murray, Carol Durange, was brought to the jail to see whether she could identify Bundy in a suspect lineup. She did. Word spread that Bundy might have been the man who killed all of those victims across Colorado, Utah, Idaho, Oregon, and Washington. DNA technology had not been introduced in the mid-1970s. Forensic evidence was thin. There were eyewitnesses from Lake Sammamish, but their recollections were only vital to law enforcement. On the witness stand, they wouldn't have been much help to prosecutors. All they saw was a stranger fitting Ted's description talking to the victims. Detectives from every jurisdiction investigating Bundy met in Colorado for what has since been referred to as the Aspen Summit. They all came away from that summit convinced that they needed more to charge Bundy with murder. But Ted Bundy would still go on trial in Utah for kidnapping and assault related to his attack on Durange. Bundy opted for a bench trial. A judge would decide on his innocence or guilt. Not a jury. Bundy, at the age of 29, was found guilty. In June, after he underwent a psychological examination in which a doctor recommended that Bundy not be placed on probation due to his penchant for violence, was sentenced to a minimum of one year and a maximum of 15 years in prison. Less than four months into that sentence, Colorado authorities charged Bundy for the murder of 23-year-old Karen Eileen Campbell. She was the one victim he killed in 1975 whose remains were found. Campbell's body was discovered five weeks after she disappeared on a dirt road near a snowmass hotel where she was last seen alive. In January 1977, Bundy was transferred to Aspen. Months later, he was moved again, this time only 40 miles to the Garfield County Jail in Glenwood Springs. Bundy was there awaiting trial for a charge of first-degree murder, which carried a death sentence. Bundy being housed outside Aspen was big news there, and he gave a lot of television interviews. He said over and over again that he was innocent. Behind the scenes, prosecutors were nervous about trying him. They had only a circumstantial case against Bundy. And yet their case was the best shot authorities had to convict him. By then, Bundy was suspected of committing at least 16 murders, but was charged in only one of them. That shows how thin the evidence was against him. Bundy, as it turned out, did not want to take his chances in court. 
One day in June 1977, Bundy appeared during a pretrial hearing. In spite of never finishing law school and having a court-appointed attorney assigned to him, Bundy served as his own attorney. During a recess, he requested that he go to the law library to review some documents related to his case. Bundy, who wasn't shackled because he was serving as his own attorney, jumped out a second-story window. He was an escaped fugitive for six days. He had broken into a cabin on top of a mountain to get some food and clothes. The rain and cold night air severely affected him. He became disoriented. He unknowingly wandered back toward town and eventually stole a car. He had injured his ankle from when he jumped out of the law library and that may have caused him to drive erratically. At any rate, a pair of police officers apprehended Bundy and he was brought back to jail. Six months later, on the night of December 30th, with Bundy's trial looming, he escaped again. This time, Bundy, who had lost significant weight, cut a hole in the ceiling of his cell and crawled into the upstairs apartment, which was occupied by the head jailer. He was not at home at the time. Bundy stole some of the jailer's clothes and walked out the front door. He was a free man again. Authorities didn't notice he was missing until the following morning. Bundy would not be caught again until 46 days later in Pensacola, Florida. By then, he had terrorized another university. He also caused panic in a small southern town 100 miles to the east of that university. He killed three females and critically injured three others during his rampage. He was thwarted in an attempt to kill another victim in Jacksonville. Bundy circled back west and wound up in Pensacola, where he was stopped by a police officer by the name of David Lee. Bundy was driving a stolen Volkswagen Bug. Bundy put up a fight, but Lee subdued him. Here is Lee talking to the media about that arrest. He uh, grabbed my wrist and we had a struggle for control of my revolver. After several minutes of fighting, I did manage to subdue him by striking him with my revolver and completing the arrest by placing the cuff on his other hand and taking him back to the patrol car. Lee, when he testified at Bundy's first Florida trial in Miami the following year, said Bundy had a death wish. Here is what he said while on the stand. He made these statements several times on the way back to the station that he wished I had killed him. Uh, on the way back to the station, he also made the statement, if I run at the jail, will you shoot me then? At the time of Bundy's capture, Lee had no idea who he had arrested. Bundy was in possession of a fake ID. In fact, no one in Pensacola knew that one of the FBI's most wanted fugitives, a suspected serial killer, was in the city's jail. Part two of that story is coming next week. Thank you for listening. For next week's show, I'll be joined again by John Tanner, as well as veteran journalist Joe Callahan, who was a fledgling newspaper man at the Lake City Reporter when Bundy was sent to the electric chair. 
You'll hear him describe to me the circus-like atmosphere outside Florida State Prison, the day Bundy was executed. Next week's episode also will include archived courtroom audio and clips from other televised interviews related to the Bundy case, as well as more audio from Bundy himself. I also wanted to take this time to plug a new podcast published by Gatehouse Media and the Daytona Beach News Journal. In anticipation of the 61st Daytona 500, scheduled for this Sunday, the News Journal has released the podcast series Daytona 500 Inside Victory Lane. Narrated by Bob Connolly, the podcast gives racing fans a quick roundup of every Daytona 500 race ever run. It's a great listen for serious NASCAR fans or anyone interested in the history of this great race. Check out Inside Victory Lane on Stitcher, iTunes, or anywhere else you find podcasts. For full race coverage, visit the News Journal website at news-journalonline.com. Sun Crime State will resume its regular weekly schedule next week with part two of the Ted Bundy story. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at Tony Crime Writer or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal.